You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, um, I give you thanks that the people in this room are exactly the people you want in this room. And that, um, Lord, as Michael just reminded us, we are here and we want to hear from you. And Father, um, just pray that you would open up your word to us. I pray that you would speak through me, speak through our discussion, Lord, that you would be glorified. And um, just pray that we would see you, particularly, Lord, that we would see Jesus today as we um, open up your word. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so like I said, we're finishing the book of Haggai today, and it has a very weird ending for an even weirder book. But the good news about today is we're getting all the way to Jesus. So we're going to see how even the small Old Testament post-exilic prophet of Haggai points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so for those who have not been here the past two weeks, uh, we'll do a quick recap, and then we'll read the end of Haggai. And we'll have a discussion about it. Okay, so Haggai, we know, is a post-exilic prophet. And what does that mean? He prophesied after they returned. That is, yes, wow. You guys are star students. Yes. So Haggai comes. What happens is 538, 537, 538. The temple, 587. Wow, I was off. Okay, 587, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. It's real, real bad. Then a bunch of Israelites are sent into exile in Babylon. During that time, there's the Persian invasion. Persians take over. God's people are still in exile. Then in 539, King Cyrus of Persia says, All right, Israelites, y'all can come on back to Jerusalem, but you need to rebuild the temple. So about 50,000 exiles return. I think that's significant. That 50,000, that's a lot of people. That's a long way to go, too. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. They come back to Jerusalem, and initially they get to, they start work on, the, on rebuilding the temple. And yay, things are going well. Well, then God's people get lazy. There's some foreign invasions. They got a ward off. There's some internal division, and the work on the temple stops. And that's not good, because... What What is the purpose of the temple? Why is it significant that the temple is built? Uh, so many significances. Well, name some. God's glory. Yeah, it's a manifestation of God's glory. What happens at the temple? The place where he dwells, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. What do you do at the temple? Sacrifice and worship. Yes, sacrifice and worship. It was a, it was a way of God's people in their ignoring ignoring of the temple, not rebuilding it. It was their way of saying God's not that important to us. God can kind of remain on the on the periphery, whatever. We're just going to go about our lives. So God sends Haggai the prophet, and Haggai's word is, "Hey people, wake up. Consider your lives. Get back to work on the temple because that's the key to the most satisfying life you can have when God is at the center." And then Michael talked about last week, Haggai make through the Lord, or the Lord through Haggai, makes this grand promise that the glory of the temple is going to be even greater than it was before, which is a pretty significant promise given that the that Solomon's temple, the one that was destroyed, was pretty darn glorious. And so it's a pretty big promise that the Lord is making to these people, that this temple that's now only just foundational, and one day will be greater. And keep that in the back of your mind as we work forward to Jesus. 
Um, Michael and anyone else has been here. Am I missing anything about Haggai? I mean, obviously I'm missing two weeks worth of stuff, but that as my overview. Um, I mean, the first part is really the, the guts of it. Of, um, and you spoke about it, but just like the, the call to consider and to reorientate your life around God. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And um, in Haggai's first word, y'all might remember, there's this Haggai comes and he says, you've been busying yourselves with your paneled houses while the Lord's house lies in ruins. That could almost be the thesis. They, they were investing in the wrong things, focused on their, themselves and their own personal gain while the temple remained in ruins. And things did not fare well for them as a result. Okay, so now we are finishing up. Like I said, we're going to read Haggai 10 through 20. Yeah, sorry, Haggai chapter 2, if only Haggai were 10 chapters, uh, verses 10 through 23. Does someone want to read for us? Or maybe someone read 10 through 18 and then, no, sorry, 10 through 19, and then someone else read 20 through 23? Oh, well. Thanks, Mom. Although I'm probably not going to pronounce some of these words. That is quite all right. On the 24th day of the ninth month, Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so this does seem like the weirdest, most anticlimactic ending to the weirdest book in the Bible. But we're going to see that that's not the case. We get to talk about meat, and we get to talk about agriculture, and signet rings. It's a lot of good stuff coming. Pomegranates, yes. <laughs> okay, so... The way, the way I want us to kind of walk through this text is thinking about it this way. We've got present unholiness, past disobedience, and future blessing. That's maybe what we'll see. That's what I see. Um, but let's start just from the very beginning. A very good place to start. Okay, we're told that Haggai comes to these people, these returned exiles, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius. Okay, based on our calendar today, 24th day of the ninth month is December 18th, 520, the second year of King Darius. This is one of my favorite things about Haggai, just kind of a side note. We have such a specificity of when he comes. You can almost just kind of feel like the interruption in the people's lives. On this very day, this very year, the Lord spoke through Haggai. I, I really like that about this book. Okay, but this is a significant date for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'll be very impressed if someone remembers this, but does anyone remember the day that we're told in Haggai the foundation of the temple is laid? The first time or the second? The second time, after they've returned from exile. September 21st. We're told that in um, at the end of chapter 1. So, September 21st to December 18th, roughly. That's about three months in between these oracles. And what I think Haggai's trying to do, because he's almost coming to the day of when that initial stone was laid on the rebuilding of the temple, he's kind of, I think, doing it as a motivational thing of, hey, the three-year anniversary of y'all starting back to work. This is a joyous thing. I want you to be encouraged. Let's mark this day. Let's celebrate it. This significant day that the work on the temple has been going on for three months. Okay, but also agriculturally, this is a significant time. So December, December 18th, we're in midwinter. So that means 
the spring crops had already been harvested. The early, excuse me, the autumn crops had already been harvested. However, the late winter crops had been planted, but the later rains, the latter rains that were to come and fertilize those late winter crops had not come yet. So in other words, it's a waiting season. The, har the, the seeds were in the ground, but there was still no harvest because the rains hadn't come. So it's the season of anticipation, of waiting, I would imagine of a, a little bit of anxiety. I mean, because crops are the lifeblood of these people. Are we going to have a good harvest? We don't know. Are these previous crops going to last us until the next harvest? We don't know. Think about, too, how the temple must have looked. So what was the promise, again, that, ha that God made through Haggai in, um, at the beginning of chapter 2 that Michael talked about last week? What was the second temple going to be like? Yeah, it was going to be more glorious. But think about what the temple would have looked like right now, three months into rebuilding it. Not much. Yes. So I think this is cool because Haggai comes in this moment. It's been three months. I would imagine they're getting a little discouraged. The temple is still probably only, you know, yay high. And it's this waiting season. It's this moment of anticipation, of waiting, of expectancy, but also, like I said, probably some anxiety. And that's where Haggai comes and enters into. And what is Haggai's word? Well, he comes to the priests, and in classic Haggai fashion, it's a really weird question. And so, what, what's Haggai trying to get at with asking these questions about holiness and unholiness? First off, let's remind ourselves, when God asks a question, is it because he needs to know the answer? No, God knows everything. So when God asks a question, it's not because he's looking for information. It's because he wants to draw us into consider, Haggai's favorite word. So God comes, the Lord of hosts, through the hand of Haggai. And he has a question for the priests about holy meat and about uncleanliness and unholiness. And based on this logic, is holiness contagious? No, holiness is not contagious. Yes, Michael, thank you. Okay, so yeah, verse 12. If someone's carrying holy meat in the fold of his garment and then touches a third object, that object does not become holy. Holiness is non-transferable. What about unholiness in verse 13? Transferable. Quite, yes. Unholiness is like Omicron. It's just uncontrollably spreadable. And it gets even worse. Say what? You're going to get it. You're going to get it, yes. <laughs> no one is safe from the unholiness disease, yes. And it's a deep problem because not only are the people unclean, but the works of their hands are unclean. So, does that mean that they can cleanse themselves? Absolutely not, no. So, Haggai comes and he asks these questions to the priest to kind of wake God's people up to their problem of unholiness. And not only that, but their need for an outside source of cleansing. Someone or something to come and cleanse them from the inside out because they cannot do it by the works of their hands. And I meant to say this earlier, but does anyone know what holy means? Pure. It does a little. What did you say, Robert? You mean like in the Latin root, like? Sacred or 
Oh, I did not even know that that's what that meant in Latin. Oh, well, I know that, like, sacred and, um, or, no, like, sanctus, meaning holy in Latin, means, like, set apart. Boom. There it is. Yes, set apart, separate. So when things are holy in the Bible, it's something that God has designated to be set apart for use by him. So something like meat that's used as a sacrifice, that can be holy. People can be holy. And obviously, what is the most holy, set-apart other thing that exists? God. God, yes. God is as... Jesus, God, the Bible. The, the God is as holy as it gets. He's as other as it gets. So we've got a problem, right? Because we've got unclean people that are not able to clean themselves. And we've got a perfectly holy God that can't be in a relationship with anything that's not holy. So there's a, there's a discrepancy there. How is it going to get fixed? And hopefully your wheels are turning a little bit and you're going to see that we're getting to Jesus. And then two, hopefully you know that are we any different from the people in Haggai's day that have a problem with uncleanliness? Not at all. Yeah, what makes us unclean? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And can we cleanse ourselves by the works of our own hands? No. I think of like a little toddler with muddy hands trying to draw a bath. He's just going to get like his handprints everywhere and it's not going to be good. That, that's like us. We too are in need of external purification. We're in need of someone else to come and cleanse us from the inside out so that we can be in a relationship with a perfectly holy God. Okay, so that's Haggai's word in the present. Present unholiness. Any other, do you have any other thoughts about that? Mm, mm. See, I think, you're right, Michael. He doesn't immediately say, and here's what you can do about it. Which I think is, that's how God does work, you know? I don't think he wants us to just do like a one, two, three process. But I get what you're saying. He addresses the problem, but not necessarily the solution. I guess it makes sense in the context of what's happening. Like they're rebuilding the temple. You all need to do this so you can clean yourself. Right. Yes. You know, you make a good point, Michael. It's, it's like a practical word of, Hey, the temple needs to be rebuilt so that sacrifices can start kicking up again. It's, you're not just ceremonially, ceremonially, ceremoniously. Sure. You're not just that level of unclean. It runs in the family. Yeah. Okay. That's a way harder word than pomegranate. (laughs) Um, yeah, and you know, Michael, you make a good point too, because one thing I think Haggai's doing here, the Lord's doing here, is he's getting them ready for the unmeritedness, the unearnedness of the future blessing that's coming. It's a way of saying, you're unclean, you can't do anything about it, and yet there's going to be blessing coming. The temple will be rebuilt, and then Zerubbabel is going to get us to even the cleansing of Jesus. But that's a good word. We're here. <laughs> That's good, Robert. That is good. Why do you think God's doing that? Think, too, back to what season it is. Season of waiting. Exactly. Yeah. That's a really good word, Robert. Yeah. And, I, you know, that's that's usually how God enters in. The unexpected, the boring, the hard, the bleak. Um, if Gil were here, he would want me to say, in the bleak midwinter. He loves that song. Okay, back to Haggai. So we've seen present unholiness. 
then what about past disobedience? So someone read for me verse 15 and 16. Excellent. Thanks, Michael. Okay, so Haggai's question about the past is, hey, remember back when you returned from exile and you stopped work on the temple and you were busying yourself with your paneled houses and you didn't obey my decree to rebuild the temple? How was life going? And what's the answer? Not too well. It was not going too well, no. And honestly, this is what I'm excited to talk with you all about because... I still don't have my mind fully wrapped around what God's doing here and calling them back to think about that time in their lives. I mean, I think on one hand, God's saying, hey, remember that when I'm not at the center, remember that when you neglect me, remember that when you're the Lord of your own life, things don't go well for you. I don't want that for you. Consider, consider, consider. I think there's also this sense here of, I mean, there are real consequences for disobedience. Um, back in Deuteronomy, when God kind of lays out the stipulations of his covenantal relationship with us, there are consequences for disobedience and there are blessings for obedience. But this is what I want to be careful about because we can get dangerously close to the prosperity gospel here. If we say that God rewards obedience and he punishes disobedience, good people get good things, bad people get bad things, manifest health, wealth, and success. That, that's not how God works. Because, you know, remember when God makes a covenant with us, he does so with the intention of fully, always, faithfully upholding his end of the bargain, even when we don't. So it's never tit for tat. But what do you all think God's doing here? Why do you think that God is coming and he's saying, hey, remember... Remember back when you were disobedient and unfaithful and I struck you with blight and mildew and hail? Why do you think he's reminding them of this? Well, this, he does the same thing that he did with the past. Or sorry, with the present unholiness. He says, yeah, remember when you didn't turn to me? I'm in verse 17. Yet you did not, you did not turn to me. And then he just leaves it there. And so this is why I do think, I think God's being intentional here if he's saying, Hey, you're presently unclean. In the past, you were filthy. Or in the past, you were disobedient. But that hasn't changed the fact that blessing is still coming. And it's undeserved. It's not because you can do it yourself. It's not because you've been working on the temple. It's because I'm a faithful God. And I'm remembering, I'm drawing you back to remember my character. Any other thoughts on past disobedience when Haggai comes and draws them back to remember their past. All right, now we're getting, it's getting real good because future blessing. So there's a shift in verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, so the same day, since the, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. So back in September, September 21, consider is the seed yet in the barn indeed the vine the fig tree the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing but from this day on i will bless you okay so again really weird question and we kind of wish haggai would just tell us what he's trying to say but based on what i said about agriculture is the seed in the barn currently no no where is the seed it's in the ground, exactly. 
Okay, so the seed's not in the barn, but the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, these late winter crops, they haven't sprouted up yet because the latter rains haven't come. So again, waiting, anticipation, dullness, hope. But from this day on, I will bless you. Think about to the temple again, foundations laid, the seeds in the ground. The promise has been made of the latter glory of the temple, but the harvest certainly hasn't come yet because the temple is still being rebuilt. So it's in this moment that God enters in and he has this weird weird word about Zerubbabel. And we think this is the most anticlimactic ending ever with this random guy. Haggai just leaves us with nothing. But that's obviously not the case. So based on what we saw in chapter 1, does anyone remember who... Oh, it actually tells us in verse 21 who Zerubbabel is. He's the governor of Judah, correct. So he's actually super, super significant. If we go back to chapter 1, we're told that Zerubbabel is the son of... Shealtiel. I can't say that quite right, but all right. That lets us know that Zerubbabel is a member of the Davidic lineage. He is a direct descendant of King David. And what do y'all know about King David? A lot. Well, tell us some of the things you know. He what? Yes. Shout out to the Psalms. It's not quite what I was going for, but uh, that'll do. God made a covenant with him. him, Yes. (laughs) Way back in the day, we're in like the 900s BC now when God makes a covenant with David. And here's what God says to David through the prophet Nathan. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is a huge moment in salvation history. God comes to David and he says, hey, through you, my kingdom is going to be set up, and it's never, ever, ever, ever going to be shaken. So when we read the Old Testament, we've always got this kind of lingering question of, will there be a Davidic king on the throne? And what about this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this righteous branch that's going to come and he's going to bring justice and righteousness? Where is he? Will God be faithful to this promise he made to David? And so we see that anytime there's a Davidic king on the throne, it's God kind of saying, yes, I've still got you. So it's super, super significant now that God, even in the midst of foreign rule, remember the Persians are on the throne right now. Zerubbabel is just the governor. God comes and he says, hey, Zerubbabel, descendant of David, I am going to take you and I'm going to make you a signet ring. Anyone know what a signet ring is? It's a family ring. I mean, it, it, it identifies who you belong to. Yeah. Do you, there was another function of it. Anyone know? I mean, I can only, I don't know, but I mean, we get the word sign. Is it a seal? Yes. Yes. So it's like a, it's like a sign of kingly authority. So if a king needed to 
authenticate a document, he would, I don't really know how it would work, but he would, wax. yeah, wax. Yeah, he would dip his signet ring in the wax and then press it on the um, sheet or whatever, the papyrus. And it was a way of saying, this is from the king. This has my authority. This bears my name. This is an extension of my rule. And so, as God is taking, and interestingly enough, that word take um, in Hebrew means to change the status of. And God uses it, or the Hebrew writers use it when used in Davidic kings are anointed for kingship. So that's a significant word. God's going to take Zerubbabel as his signet ring. The authority is God's. Zerubbabel is just the ring. So it's God saying, I am reinstalling the Davidic line. There is hope. I have not abandoned my promises to you. I'm going to be faithful to the covenant I made with David. My throne will not be destroyed. There is blessing coming. The seed is in the ground. The promises I've made, they are going to come true. The harvest is coming. So it's an incredibly hopeful word to end with this word to Zerubbabel. And, okay, here's where, we're, where we will end, but this our boy Zerubbabel pops up once again in the Bible. Does anyone want to guess where? In oh, um, the lineage. Yes, yeah. exactly, yes. You've been in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. So he actually gets a shout-out in both Matthew and Luke's genealogies. And, yeah, I'm not going to read all of Matthew 1 because... There are a lot of names. But Zerubbabel is in there. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. And we get all the way to Jesus Christ. So, in a lot of cool ways, this small book of Haggai gets us all the way to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of every single thing that we've talked about in Haggai. He is the satisfaction that everyone is so sorely and desperately lacking in chapter 1. He is the atoning sacrifice that we need that cleanses us from the inside out. He is the temple. Michael did a good job of talking about this last week, where the glory of God dwells, God among us. He is the great high priest. I mentioned that. Jesus is the cornerstone. Oh, and of course, Jesus is the long-awaited heir, the son of David that will come and perfectly uphold his throne forever. You know, his holiness also is... Oh, that's good. I hadn't thought about that. Oh, that's a great connection. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And Jesus is who made their buys one oblation and sacrifice a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice. Um, yeah. All those words. That's a really good connection. I hadn't thought about that touching. And all it takes is the hem of his garment, the holiness of Jesus, and she's healed. That's what you're referring to, right? And I was going to try and take us all the way to Revelation of, okay, these people have Jesus to look forward to as their future. Well, we're looking back on that. We have heaven to look forward to. No temple clothed in white robes, purified, finally away from the presence of sin. Satisfied at the banquet of Jesus. He's on his throne as the king. That's what we have to look forward to. In our in our harvest season, or in our pre-harvest season, as we wait. So it was a lot for Haggai 2, um, the end of Haggai. But any other thoughts? 
Whenever the bells ring, I get really stressed and feel like. I think it's amazing what you pulled out of this. Well, praise be to God. Make Haggai great again. <laughs> if you leave knowing nothing. When was Haggai ever great? That's a good question. <laughs> Haggai was great during Haggai's day. Uh, I wish I knew what happened to him, but one day I'll get to talk with him. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 